So if you're new to Storyline, welcome to Storyline. What a passage, right? Um, my goodness. I, as I was looking um, and reading this past week, getting ready, the thing that I kept reading over and over again is this is the most challenging passage in the first five books of the Bible. <laughs> and you look at it, and it's, it's probably true, right? I mean, you look at this, it probably stirs more questions than anything else that you take away from it, right? The sons of God come and take wives out of the daughters of mankind, and they have children together. What in the world does that mean? That the God's spirit will not remain with mankind? What? <laughs> you have the Nephilim? Like, I'm pretty sure they live in the Ozarks if they're still alive, right? There's just craziness that happens down in the Ozarks. But like, if you watch the, the movie Noah with Russell Crowe in it, these are the big giant rock creatures that are in there. They take some creative liberties in that movie, to say the least. But look, you look at this, and you're like, what in the world is going on? Like, this is a wild passage, but here's the thing, all right, we're, we're a church that doesn't shy away from the Word of God. So I, we're not just skipping over the passage. We're not just going to like, because it's challenging, move on and hope you don't like realize that we skipped over a part of this book of Genesis. We're going to deal with it. Um, but at the same time, I also believe that God has a word for us in the midst of it, all right? And so before we dive in, let me just kind of set up the passage so last week, we looked at the line of Seth. It's this genealogy, just this list of names. You have 10 different generations of the son of Seth that is the son of Adam. And so you see all these different generations that happen. And it's supposed to be a sense of hope for us as we've been wrestling with just the fall that happened in Genesis chapter 3, the first sin that happened in this world, and the effects that have happened throughout these children of Adam already. And so you look at this line of Seth, and it's supposed to produce a sense of hope inside of us. Next week, we're looking at uh, God's command to Noah to build the ark. And so you know what happens with the, the ark in the story and how that plays out. And so what you get is our passage that's sandwiched in between these two, all right? And so what this passage really is, it's like a prologue. If you watch a movie, a movie has a prologue, which is sort of like the first initial scene. So if you've watched any of the Lord of the Rings movies, um, getting into my nerd self here, if you watch any of the Lord of the Rings movies, they usually have a first scene where it's like the scene that's setting up the rest of the movie, where you're basically working through all of this history that leads up to the narrative that you're about to, that's about to unfold as you watch the rest of the movie. And that's exactly what's happening here with this prologue, all right? What we're getting is a lot of history that leads up to what happens in the life of Noah as well as the flood that we all know is about to come. So what Moses is trying to do, Moses is the writer of Genesis, and so what Moses is trying to do, he's trying to give us like in these short eight verses, just like what's been happening throughout human history, what's leading up to the act of the flood so that we can have a sense and a trajectory for what is going on. And what happens here in this prologue, usually a prologue gives you a particular perspective of a character that's in the movie or story. And so as we're looking at this prologue, we're getting God's perspective of the spread of sin throughout mankind, all right? 
That's what's happening here in this prologue. So as you're, we're about to wrestle with a lot of things that produce many questions in our hearts and our minds, we need to have this perspective that this is being written, this prologue is written so that we have an understanding into the mindset of God, into the acts that are about to flow throughout the remainder of the story. Make sense? And so as we're wrestling with this prologue, we're going to see three things, all right? So here's like your roadmap for where we're going, all right? The first one is you get to see God's pain. God's pain as a result of mankind's sin. Second, we see God's plan to deal with the spread of sin, all right? And then thirdly, you get God's provision and the judgment of sin. So this is where we're heading. Those are the three different ways that you can kind of break down the movement of these eight verses that we're about to look through. But we need to start with the effect of sin, which we see in verses one through six. So there's a lot that I'm going to have to point back to in this. So I'm just going to kind of reread the story for us so we have a refresher, so it's fresh on our minds, so we can dissect it a little bit and get our head around the craziness that's happening. All right, so here's what verse one through six says. When mankind began to multiply on earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. So what we get here is an explanation of how sin has become so widespread across the earth, all right? So mankind is fulfilling the creation mandate that they be fruitful and multiply. So we are seeing that there are more and more people that are filling the earth. And it appears that as all of this is happening, there are fallen spiritual beings, sons of God that we see here in this passage that take human women as wives and then they procreate. So Look, I know that sounds crazy, all right? So, but it makes the most sense if you're really trying to dissect this throughout the rest of what the Bible talks about in relation to this passage, all right? So you, it, you get a, another uh, use of the sons of God in Job 1 through 2. So if you remember the story of Job, Job 1 and 2, there is this divine counsel that happens where it seems like there are spiritual beings that come and meet with God and there's a meeting that happens. The phrase that's used of that divine counsel is sons of God and it is in light of spiritual beings, okay? And so you have that, then you have other references throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. So you have the apostle Peter as well as Jude, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, and Jude 1, 6, they all reference back to this particular time period with Noah, and they reference fallen spiritual beings, all right? So there are some people that have tried to argue that these sons of God are just the spiritual, the good line of Seth. These are the people that God is 
bringing about the fulfillment of his promise in Genesis 3. Some have tried to relate that to this line of Seth. And so it's just these men that are of Seth and they've seen the women of the brother Cain and have taken wives of Cain. And so you see like this, uh, these people that are away from God, they've diverted themselves away from God. The daughters of Cain are taken by the sons of Seth because they're beautiful. And then you see like the, it's basically a pollution of this good family line of Seth. It just doesn't work, though, if you look at the rest of all of Scripture. And then the result of these intermarriages of the fallen spiritual beings with the wives of man or with the daughters of man are the Nephilim, which are the translation of this, of Nephilim, if you're looking at the original language, are the fallen ones, all right, which is almost like the nail in the coffin for me that this has to be talking about fallen spiritual beings, all right? So look, I know that I may have discredited myself to you because that seems so far-fetched for so many of us that are here, but I have to be true to what the Bible speaks if you're taking all of it together. And if you take all of it together, this has to be kind of where you're coming from. So like that, this is what is happening, all right? So the Bible reports that God looks down on all that is happening here from heaven, and he concludes that sin has run rampant on earth. Every inclination of the human mind is nothing but evil all the time, and it deeply grieves him to the point of regretting that he's created humanity altogether. <sighs> A lot, right? Now here's the question, all right? As wild as this story is, like, where do you get that sin is so widespread and that it's running rampant, right? All right, fallen spiritual beings taking wives of mankind. But like, where is all of the sin in this? Well, it's a clear overstep again, all right? Genesis chapter three, we already saw this. This is a clear overstep again by humankind in order to try to assume the role of a divine and achieve immortality, all right? That's what's happening here, all right? So think about it. Man uses the knowledge of good and evil that has happened in the garden, as well as the God-given capabilities that God has given them, the, the things that he's given us as we're created in his image in order to model him, these things that we have been uniquely designed for. And, we're used, and these people have all used these things in order to try to obtain God-like status. That's what's happening here, all right? Pre-fall, there's like this childlike innocence of evil, all right? So whenever Satan comes into the garden, he comes in disguise as a serpent, right? Why? Why would Satan come into the garden in this way? Well, Eve and Adam have no disposition of evil, so they have no knowledge of Satan himself. And so if Satan is going to work his way into this first couple, he isn't going to come as this brand new revelation. He's working under the very, uh, the, the rules of God here. And so he comes in disguise as the serpent that they've interacted with, that they've encountered, and that's the way that he weaves his way into their life, all right? And then post-fall, Adam and Eve are aware of Satan, his companions, and evil. And rather than use the knowledge of good and evil that has been obtained 
through the fall in Genesis chapter 3, as well as all the other gifts that God has given them in order to draw near to God, what you see happening here is that they're actually using it to further reject him. They want to obtain the status of the divine so that they can inhabit a world that is apart from God himself. Do you see what's happening here? And so what you can see when it says that every inclination of the human mind is that they are using their proclivities, they're using their giftings, they're using this knowledge that they obtained. Everything that they are doing, that they're scheming, is trying to actually get them to this godlike status. That's what's happening in the world. Make sense? Okay. Hopefully clear as mud. So they're willing to go to these links that they even take, they are giving their daughters to fallen spiritual beings so that they can try to obtain godlike status is what's happening here. And as fascinating as this story is, is all these radical, crazy details that are going on here. The thing that should pop out most to us even more than like Nephilim, these like rock creatures from the movie. Anything that pops out to us most out of this should be what the heart of God, the effect of our sin is on God himself, which is this, that God was deeply grieved. Other translations put it like this, it grieved him to his heart. What is being communicated here is the most intense emotion. It's this mixture of both anger and anguish. That's happening here, all right? And so what you should recognize as the effect of our sin on God is there's two things that I think we should at least pull out. There's probably more, but here's the two things that I were, the things that were like stirring in my heart as I was looking at this in the effect of our sin on God. The first one is how offensive our sin is. How offensive our sin is. The Hebrew word for grieved here is used elsewhere throughout the Bible, and it also describes that of a deserted wife. So imagine that, all right? This happens in the book of Isaiah. The anger and anguish that we feel when we're betrayed and rejected by someone that we have given our whole life to. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you stand at that altar, and you're taking a spouse when you're taking that spouse, you're not just standing before them like, I'm going to only give you like X amount of my life, right? You know, I only, I, I want to be happy with you and I want to have a life with you, but only to a certain extent. And so like there's going to be a measure that I'll give you, but then I'm going to reserve the rest for me. Whenever you stand before them, you have big hopes and dreams for your relationship together, don't you? Like you have, you're dreaming a life together. You're dreaming of what it looks like for you to draw closer and closer to this person. If the dream that we have at that altar is true, then what is actually the day of the wedding is probably the place that we will least have the connectedness and intimacy with that person that we have dreamt for for the rest of our relationship. You know what I'm saying? Like you have these big desires, aspirations that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. And then over the course of these years that we spend, you're only going to get to know me more and more and more. And I'm only going to get to know you more and more and more. And then these dreams and these hopes and these aspirations, hopefully we'll be able to see all these things take place. But when, what happens when there's an affair, when someone betrays you, rejects you, 
leaves you is there's anger, there's anger and anguish that happen in your heart, isn't there? There is something that is unspeakable that happens to your soul because what the Bible tells us is whenever you have a, a two people that come together and they marry, they become one flesh. And whenever you tear that apart, it does something that is unspeakable to your soul. Literally, over time, the, the, hard, the hardness of it may wear off, but the effect that it has on your soul never goes away. That's what happens here. When we are seeing this passage and it grieves God's heart, it's revealing to us the offense that our sin has to God the God that has created us in his image, that's created us for a relationship with him, when we sinned in the garden with Adam and Eve, because that's what the Bible tells us, every single one of us are bound up in this sin. We've all inherited the sinful nature from them. When that happens, there is a betrayal and a rejection of God that equates this anger and anguish that happens inside of his heart. There's this woundedness that now is present because of our sin. Now, look, I understand that we really struggle with this because a lot of us don't want to view ourselves as a sinner, or at least not that bad of a sinner. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a way that we defend ourselves against any accusations when we, because we don't see the severity of our own sin. Look, like, sin has, like, these blinders that it puts on us that it really kind of speaks a lie to us that you're really, we're really not as bad as what maybe things like the Bible tell us. Here's what even Martin Lloyd-Jones says, an old ancient preacher. We're all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. That's what we feel inside. Without the awareness of who God is and his character, when we are confronted with our sin, we're like, I'm really not that bad. Look at, we do this because we compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Well, look at how bad that person is. I, I haven't gone to that extent, so surely God looks at me and we're fine because I haven't done X, Y, or Z that this other person has. But when you look at this, this is to be a mirror to us, y'all. This passage is to be a mirror to us of how offensive our sin is. We look at this passage, we need someone that can speak from the outside because from the inside, we're never going to see the effect of our sin. We're never going to see the offense of our sin. We need something from the outside of us to speak in, and that's what this passage is. It shows us the offensiveness of our sin, but not only the offensiveness of our sin, we also see how profoundly patient God is. We see the patience of God, all right? So with how offensive our sin is, God is so patient and slow with us, y'all. I mean, consider a number of things, all right, here. So consider verse three. It says, his spirit will not remain with man forever and that the length of his years will be 120 years, all right? So there's an argument here that 120 years is now the cap for the lifespan of man. I think this is a little bit harder to get to because even after this passage, you still see people that are living far beyond 120 years. The other argument is that the length of time, the 120 years is the length of time from the judgment that God is placing here to when he will actually act. See that? See the difference? And so step back from that. Like 120 years is a long time. 
He looks out at the world, and this is his conclusion that sin has spread so far and deep across the world that he has to act. But he's not going to act at least until 120 years? He's giving space that people will recognize this in turn. God is patient. He's not just knee-jerk reaction responding to the conclusion that he's made about man and sin that has perversed and pervaded through man. No, he's slow here. But step back even from that. Consider how long God has endured the sin of man from Genesis 3 even all the way up to this point. So if you look at Genesis chapter 5, I did the math here, right? I'm not saying that I'm great at math. You can check my math, but it's at least somewhere around here, all right? So if you add up all the years of the generations of Seth in Genesis chapter 5, it's 7,625 years before the birth of Noah. That is a long time. Look, God is patient. He's patient with us. It's no wonder in Moses, when it, 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 in Exodus chapter 34, it's no wonder that Moses writes after God has passed before him and he sees the back of God. His response to this whole encounter is this, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. We see all this together here, don't we? The offense of our sin, the guilty cannot go unpunished, but yet at the same time we see the patience of God. Over 7,000 years since sin entered into the world, 120 years before the conclusion of God is acted upon with the judgment. God is patient. You see this here in this passage. And so our sin grieves God's heart. Our sin is an incredible offense to him. Yet God has proved how profoundly patient he is with us here, even in these first six verses. He does not deal swiftly with us as our sin deserves. That's our, that should be the conclusion of our heart as we're looking at this wild passage. It's like, God is so slow with me. He's so slow with them. He's so slow with me is the conclusion that you should come to here. But sin does have to be dealt with, all right? So in verse 7, we see God's plan of how he's going to deal with this sin. So here's verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals the creatures that crawl, and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. So we see God's plan to deal with sin, all right? So we get God's pain in verses one through six. Verse seven, we get God's plan, and in God's plan, here's what I want us to see. We see the consistency of God's character. We see the consistency of God's character. Here's two things that I want you to recognize, that both God is love, but also God is just. And these are not pit against each other, all right? That's what I want us to recognize here, all right? So here's probably the reaction that we have in our hearts. How could God do this? How could God look at humankind and come to the conclusion that he's gonna wipe them off, that he regrets that he even makes humanity in the beginning? I thought God was loving. Like, 
God is love. That's the thing, right? That's the thing that we want to hold on to. We want to cling on to that God is love. And here's the conclusion that I've heard other people say, I can never believe in a God that is so wrathful and mean. You ever heard people say that? Maybe you've even had that stir in your own heart. Well, here's the thing I want us to step back and look at, all right? We must look at the full nature of God. You can't pick and choose, all right? So you, when you look throughout the Bible, yes, God is told to us as love, that he's communicated, his character is communicated as love. But that's not the only thing that the Bible communicates to us about God, is it? There's a lot of other things that the Bible tells us about the very character and nature of God, that he's holy, that he's wise, that he's good, that he's sovereign. The Bible tells all of this, including that he's just. And so these are not incompatible, that God is both loving and just, all right? Experience actually proves that love and justice are not opposites, but they're actually bound together, all right? Justice is the fruit, or it's the product, or it's the result of sin, whenever, or the result of love. Whenever there is an offense that's done, or the thing that you love is threatened, what is the natural proclivity of the human heart that we stand up and fight for it, right? Whenever there is something that is done to something that you love, you desire justice. You see how those are bound together? So here's an example for you, all right? So I used to have this old black Honda Civic or a Honda Accord, and I hated this car. <laughs> I hated this car. It was like sun-beaten. Um, the transmission went out on it, and I, there was actually a time it was parked in front of our house. Someone across the street had a, a visitor over. The visitor backed out. I'm sitting in the living room watching the whole thing happen. The person backs out, hits my car, and drives off, doesn't leave a note or anything. You know what I did? I just sat there. <laughs> you know why? Like, the, the, the way that we view uh, the justice or the wrath of God is that he must not care. But it actually proves to us the opposite, that he's actually deeply loving and invested because he responds to the offense that happens with sin. If he didn't care, then he just wouldn't do anything. Now, here's the difference, all right? I have a family. I have a wife. We've been together. We started dating when we were 16. We got married straight out of college. We are celebrating our 15-year anniversary this summer. We also have four boys, nine and under, together. You know what happens if any of those people are threatened in my life? I so deeply love them. If something happens to either one of them, you know what happens and rises in my heart? Justice. I want to see whatever offense has happened to them to be, I, I want to see justice carried out for that offense. You know what I'm saying? Like you feel this, right? Like we feel this even in our soul with like the, the thing that we've prayed for through with Tyree, like when we see videos like that or we see other videos that have happened throughout the course of the last five years, usually a lot of the things that stir up inside of us are like, we can't stand for this. When you see things like school shootings, like we don't just turn a blind eye to those things because there is a natural love that we have for those that are tied to those particular events. It's because we have love that justice is the overflow whenever there's an offense towards those things that we love. And the same thing happens with our God. Look, that God 
does not turn a blind eye to sin proves to us how deeply loving for us and of us he truly is. You see that? Like he can't just turn a blind eye to it because that's not loving, is it? If God just turns a blind eye, it means that he doesn't care about us. But the Bible communicates vastly different about this God. That he so deeply is moved and loved for us, in love for us. And nor can he just sweep our sin under the rug because then he's no longer just. Look, the Bible is clear that God never changes. He is the same as he was from the beginning of time, from eternity past. He's the same in the present, and he will be the same in the future. If there's one person that you can trust that is always going to be the same, his character is consistent. It is our God. And if that is true of God, then he cannot just sweep our sin under the rug because then he would not be who he has claimed himself to be. If there has been an offense, uh, a sin that has happened in this world, it is only of God's character that something has to pay for that sin. Justice has to happen. And so look, as you're looking at this, even though it's hard for us to get our minds and our hearts around this, it proves to us that God is truly who he claims that he is, that he is a God of consistent character, that he is both loving as well as just. So look, a God who is loving and holy cannot overlook sin. It must be dealt with. God's plan is not unfair. It is not that God is impatient with us, that he's given a knee-jerk reaction to our sin. We've seen how patient and forbearing he is with us in our sin. Rather, God's plan is just. If anybody can state that I regret that I've made man as he looks at how widespread sin is and he is just in the act that he would move forward with it, it is our God. Now here's the rebuttal that all of us should have in our hearts. But what about the promise? What about the promise of Genesis chapter 3? that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, that would crush Satan, this hope that Adam and Eve clung their hearts to, that the line of Seth has cleaved their hearts to, that if we look at, back at Genesis chapter 5, you have the father of Noah, Lamech, who prays in Genesis 5, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. What about this promise, Right? What about this promise that God is going to provide someone that's going to overcome our deepest, most wicked thing that we could ever do, which was turning our back on God? What about the promise? Well, look, we get verse 8, all right? Verse 8, we get our answer in verse 8, and it's just a short verse. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. In this one tiny verse, we see God's provision. Noah has found favor with the Lord. Look, Noah is God's provision here, all right? So this word favor actually means grace, all right? So even in Genesis chapter 6, we see the beginning, the inner workings. We've seen it already, but we see it continue here in Genesis chapter 6 that God 
gives us things that we do not deserve. That's grace, right? We get a gift that we do not deserve. And here's how we know the story unfolds with Noah. Through Noah and his family, when we know that God preserves mankind, we have the rightful or the grateful position of 2020 that we get to look back, 2020 like view the eyesight, we get to look back with clarity on what has happened to Noah and his family. God preserves mankind through Noah's ark. God preserves the animals of the land through Noah. God God's promise to Eve remains through Noah. God would repopulate the earth. God accomplishes much through Noah, doesn't he? Like we, we know this story. Even if you didn't, you, maybe this is your first time stepping into the church, you have at least heard the stories of this through whether it be movies like Noah or just stories that have been told in society. We know, like Noah is one of the most recognized names and characters throughout all of the Bible, whether you've ever cracked it open or not. And there's one thing, though, that Noah could not do. There's one thing that God could not accomplish through Noah, and that's how to resolve our sin problem. Because after the flood, in Genesis chapter 8, here's what the Bible tells us. I will never again, this is God speaking, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Look, it didn't resolve it. The flood didn't resolve the human heart. Even immediately after Noah has seen that the flood has gone down and he can now leave the ark, this is God's response as he's giving this promise that he will not destroy the world through a great flood again, that the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. It has remained with Noah. So much of the tension that we've experienced in this passage uh, is between the goodness of God and then also the severity of God, right? Like we're looking at this, like how do, we, how do we live in the tension of these two? How do they fit together? How do we see it in this passage? How do we see it in the character of God throughout the rest of the Bible? Like how is this all being pieced together? God is perfectly loving as we've seen in his patience with us in this passage. God is perfectly just because he cannot overlook sin and we need someone in whom the love and justice of God perfectly meet, but it can't be Noah because what is true of his heart before the fall or before the flood remains true after the flood that he still has the original sin that he's inherited from Adam that we saw in Genesis 8:21 that we just read we also see in Genesis chapter 9 that there's a personal fall with Noah immediately after the flood has gone down we see that Noah he creates a vineyard. He takes the grapes of the vineyard. He creates wine. He gets drunk off of the wine. And then there's exposure that happens. The Bible declares this as sin. And so what we see here through the flood is only a temporary relief of the spread of sin across humanity and the earth, not a permanent relief, right? Now, if you step back from this, again, we get to look back and we also get to look forward. So we know that Noah did not deal with our problem of sin. The prayer of Lamech, he can only provide a temporary relief. There's not a permanent relief that actually happens through Noah. But the, pres the preservation of the promise continues through him. And so as we look 
at the way that God works throughout the course of human history, we know that through the line of Noah ends up coming this one, Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And here's what Romans 5, 8 says about this Jesus. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's what's bottled up in all of this. That you see the love of God and the justice of God perfectly meet in this one man, Jesus. If you want to know what the justice of God looks like, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the love of God looks like, then you also look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what we know about this Jesus, he's perfectly man, he's perfectly God, which means that he has come and he's taken on everything that you and I experience in this world. He's fully put on human flesh. He left his rightful place in heaven to come down to earth to put on human flesh, and then he walks and he lives in this world. And what does the Bible tell us about this Jesus? That he's perfect, that he is holy. If you want to see the image of God, you look at Jesus. You know exactly what God's nature is like. You know exactly how God would react and respond to events and circumstances in this world because we can look at Jesus and he's without sin. Knowing that he is without sin, Jesus says, I will go and lay my life down for those that, ha- that cannot do what I can only do for them. Jesus looks at us and he says, all of your sin, all of your wickedness, all of your brokenness, I'm taking all of that upon myself and in exchange, I'm giving you my perfection. I'm giving you my right relationship with God. I'm giving you everything that I've accomplished in this world and I'm taking all of the punishment that you deserve on myself. And so what you see in me is you see the perfect love of God that he looks on you and through Jesus we see that God's heart is bent towards us sinners. We see a God that doesn't look at us and rejects us. We look at a God that when he sees sin, his heart is actually drawn towards the sinners and he has such a holiness, he has such a purity inside of him that whenever he, if there's anybody that can see the effect that sin has had on us, it is the person without sin. Do you see that? We can't even see the sin inside of ourselves because of the blinders that sin puts up inside of us. But Jesus, being pure and holy and perfect, sees the effect that sin has had on us, and he says, I'm going to deal with it for you. That's what Jesus does. And so you see the perfect love of God. God knew this. God knew all of our sin. He wasn't surprised that whenever Jesus came down, he was like, I had no idea how wicked this place was. He knew exactly what was going on, but his heart was so drawn to you that he sends the greatest prize of heaven down to this world who lives perfectly for us and then lays his life down for us so that the justice of God can be met. The punishment of our sin is met on that cross of Jesus. Jesus did not go into this this whole ministry blindly. He knew exactly what he was getting into and he willingly, lovingly laid his life down for you. So look, in the cross of Jesus, you see the love of God. In the cross of Jesus, you see God's justice perfectly met in the man, Christ Jesus. He's the one that was to be provided. So yes, there's provision here in Noah, but he can't provide what we needed most. 
but he preserved the promise. God preserved the promise through Noah so that we could have this greater Noah in Jesus who would lay his life down, the love of God, justice of God, fully met, that we get to experience right relationship with God. Amen? So look, here's how Martin Luther puts this. God sent his son into the world, heaped all the sins of all men upon him, and said to him, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross, in short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men. That's what Jesus did for those men, and you could add your name into the blank. All our wrongs, all our sins, all our flaws, completely paid for. God's provision. Grace. A gift none of us deserved. So look, here's two responses. There's two responses that should be bubbling up inside of us. First one is this, is like, how do I access this forgiveness? And it's simply this, that you receive God's grace. It's a laying down that I no longer am going to argue in defense for myself with the things that I see in comparison to others. Well, I'm not as bad as this person. Or look at the ways that I've tried to follow the commands of God. Or look at the ways that I have served humanity by working with various different groups here in this community. Or you can add to the list here. Instead of turning to those things, or even like the faith of your family, right? Like there's a family religious lineage that takes place here in our city that many of us are kind of like, hanging our hats on. But when you look at this Jesus, you say, I'm not, I'm not gonna hang my hat on that stuff. It doesn't actually do anything. Instead, I've seen the beauty of who God is. I've seen God's holiness. I've seen his perfection. And as I've seen that, I've also seen the offense of my sin. And there has to be someone that has paid and dealt with all of this for me. And that only one is Jesus. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, puts it so perfectly for us. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you look at our, our problem here, our sin problem, and then you look at Jesus and you say, I'm trusting everything that he did for me. Everything that Jesus did for me, he took all of my wrongs and in exchange, he gives me all of his right. And that's what I'm hanging my hat on. And look, it's not a sense that you have to clean your life up before you come to this Jesus. You simply come as you are. That's why Jesus is regularly throughout the scriptures said that he's a friend of sinners. You see, his heart is drawn towards those that are dead in their sin. And so those of us that recognize that say, I, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can try to clean up my life. There's nothing that can get me through the front door to get before God. I simply trust in everything Jesus has done for me. And what he does for me is he gives me all of that he did for me and he takes all of my wrong and he paid it for me. Receive God's grace. But secondly, the response here should be like, I need to take sin seriously. We see the effect that our sin has 
on the heart of God producing pain. We see the effect that it has on this world. And so our response should be like, I need to kill my sin, right? I need to deal with this sin issue, this lingering sin that's taking place in my life. I need to take it seriously because I see the offense that it has towards God. I see the effect that it can have on my life. And I want to walk this life with this Jesus that has paid everything for me. I want my life to look like his. And so here's how you do this, all right? There, it's, it's this killing sin, um, it's something that is both a proactive as well as a reactive thing that we do in our life, all right? So if you step back and you look at this passage, the reason that I, I feel like this is something that we need to be stirring with is because we see in Genesis 6, Verse 6, that it says that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, all right? So look, for those of us that place our faith in Jesus, he promises a different life here and now. And so if we want to live into this, it, is, it comes at the killing of our sin so that our life will look more and more like Jesus. And so if this is the every inclination of the human mind was always evil, all the time, we need to wrestle with, well, then what does it look like for us to kill sin? Which Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us this, do not be conformed to this age, which was happening in Genesis chapter 6, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So look, killing sin isn't just this act of the will, it's also an act of the mind. We see that this is what is taking place in Genesis chapter 6, and then the New Testament speaks to this. So fighting sin is not just saying no to temptation, even though we do do that. It's also a redirecting of our thinking, all right? And so there's two ways that we have to respond to this. It's both, both proactive as well as reactive. Proactive, that we think about what we're consuming. Look, you, there are messages and there are things that you are consuming in your day-to-day -day life, whether it be music, the TV shows that you watch, the podcasts that you listen to, that are framing and they are, they are discipling your mind, all right? There's ways that the voice of this age are speaking into and shaping you. And we have to be proactive if we are to take seriously the transforming of our mind. We have to think about the things that are being absorbed into our life, and we have to think about the effect that that's having. If we are a people that have looked at the things that we consume and what we eat and how we are what we eat, then we also need to think about the things that we consume in terms of our mind because those things shape us as well. So look, if you want a, a mind that's being transformed, you have to think about the things that you're taking in in your day-to-day -day life. There's a proactive sense that happens here. But look, there's also a reactive. When, you are pro, when you're opposed with temptation and sin, you in, verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 2 of Romans, you're given a template for what it looks like to discern, right? It says that everything, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. Look, when you're posed with a situation of temptation, through the power of the Spirit who lives inside of you. When you trust Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are given the Holy Spirit. God comes to live inside of us. So there's a power that lives inside of you through the power of God that you can look at your situation and you can ask the question, is this good? 
when I look at this temptation in sin, is this the good that is framed for me in the Bible or is it just what my flesh wants? Is this pleasing? If I participate in this, is it going to be pleasing in my relationship with God? Is it going to draw me closer to him or is it going to create a chasm between my fellowship with this God that's done everything for me? Is it perfect? Is it something that would match the character of God? If I participate in this and God's spirit lives in me, am I taking God to participate in something that does not match with his character? You see what I'm saying? So look, if you want to kill sin, it's not just saying no to temptation. It also is a redirecting of your mind. So you have to be proactive and you also have to be reactive to the things that happen in your life. Look, the goodness of God is here in this passage. It's a warning sign to us of the effect that our sin has. It pains God's heart. God had to deal with our sin. And so he created a plan in how to deal with our sin. But look, there is provision here. We see it in Noah, the hints of it. We see the full effect of it that happens in Jesus. And we can have a right relationship with God if we receive the grace of God. And then we can live with this Jesus. And we can be changed into this Jesus if we kill sin, if we redirect our minds. We're transformed in our thinkings. Do you see it? You see it? May it be for us, and may we trust in the power of the Spirit who lives inside of us. Let's pray.